After watching movies like The Terminator, it's hard not to come away a little jaded about the future of AI. Skynet has become self-aware. In one hour, it will initiate a massive nuclear attack on its enemy. What enemy? Us! Humans! But while AI rising up to destroy the human race makes for a great action movie, the reality could come with a lot fewer explosions and over-the-top car chase scenes. I am very, very optimistic about the types of problems that AI can solve. Things like illness, things related to income inequality. We can solve some of the biggest problems that we've ever been faced with if we get it right. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, The Age of AI. My first guest is Dan Ranfola. He's a professor of applied science at William & Mary. And he says the rise of AI will be a huge boon to society, similar to the Industrial Revolution of the 18th century. There's tremendous analogs between where we are now and the Industrial Revolution. The technological innovation enabled us to feed unprecedented number of individuals all across the globe. It allowed us to enhance our ability to produce in unprecedented ways. But it also came with a lot of challenges, a lot of challenges in terms of how we regulate and how we incorporate this kind of new economy into our social structures. We're at the cusp of having to do this again. As we see the capabilities of these AI algorithms grow, we're starting to have to ask hard questions about how we should regulate these new technologies, how we should build them into our economies. It's, it's the same thing over again. And one message that I really like to get across here is that just like the Industrial Revolution really improved human lifestyle and capabilities all across the world, I'm a firm believer that AI will do that too across a number of different domains. And so we, we want to be optimistic as we approach this in thinking about how we can leverage these new tools to really improve everyone's livelihoods. Are you optimistic or trying to make yourself optimistic? I am not an optimist by nature, but I am <laughs> optimistic in this case. My optimism stems from the value of these tools. We've seen across a wide range of different disciplines, for instance, in the medical community, being able to discover drugs at a rate that would have been impossible even one or two years ago. In my own field of satellite imagery analysis, being able to identify populations of peoples that we didn't know existed so that we can provide them with things like vaccines that we couldn't have done before. These examples are growing and growing across the board of how these tools can really change our world and Seeing this firsthand makes me very optimistic that if we if we get this right, we can make huge advances. Are you actually using it and even using it to shape new tools? Yes. So one of the wonderful things we get to do is nearly every day we are working on building new algorithms to assess huge quantities of data to, in my opinion, change the world around us. We are um, working closely with some NGOs to help with vaccine deployment in very rural areas on the African continent, identifying where people live so that we, we can more effectively distribute aid. We are trying to identify places where, for example, school infrastructure is more limited so that we can provision aid to those individual locations. We're even trying to work a little bit to identify where low-income populations might live all across the world so that we can simply map that for the first time so we know where people are exposed to all sorts of different risks. None of that would have been possible for us even 10, 15 years ago. And these new technologies are opening these new doors that are today making a difference in the world. A lot of people are worried that this kind of AI will just wipe out entire categories of jobs we have employing millions. Do you think it will also employ millions? So I think we need to consider pretty carefully how we regulate these tools and technologies to ensure that the shock to society isn't as such that it will drive millions of people out of employment. I think at this point, 
most people have had a chance to go and look at ChatGPT. Most of us have probably asked it to write us a poem or write us a, a children's novel or whatever fun thing we've been doing that day. That said, I think most people have now at this point also recognized that maybe it's not quite as scary as we originally thought. It's certainly not going to be replacing millions of jobs today in its current form. That said, I think everyone now kind of sees the potential. There's a lot of potential for these tools as they improve to start to offset labor in our existing markets. And so I think as long as we're very careful, we have about, I would say, a 10 to 15 year period here where there's going to be a slow transition of a lot of different categories of jobs into kind of being less and less relevant in the workplace, ensuring that as that happens, we have appropriate social safety nets, we have appropriate opportunities for those individuals to retrain as may be, may be necessary. I am not of the belief that AI will generate enough jobs to offset the labor that will be lost. Do you think it will allow us to have more leisure and somehow help governments create safety nets that give us more money while we have more leisure? <laughs> I, I, I don't. I, I genuinely don't. I, this, this is of a concern, right, of how our social structures kind of adapt to this new reality. And this is, a, of course, a long-standing concern about wealth aggregation within the United States and, and other countries for most of human history. When new technologies come along, the individuals that control those technologies tend to reap the benefits of those technologies and ensuring that there's a distribution of wealth that occurs that helps to mediate the job loss in the United States, I think is going to be quite critical. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have large amounts of unemployment amongst large sectors of the economy. How how do you think it compares with the Industrial Revolution in that way, economically? Did the Industrial Revolution concentrate a whole lot of wealth in fewer hands, and in doing so, create a little bit more misery, even if it fed more mouths? I mean, I think absolutely, right? Even even today, when you think about, you know, what what are the wealthy names that pop to your mind when you think about kind of American wealth, many of those names are from the Industrial Revolution. Names like Ford, right. you know, I mean, these are... These are almost legacies of, of, of America right now. I am deeply concerned about you know, the impact that this will have on individuals operating within our economy today. And importantly, these are not individuals whose jobs you would traditionally think of as being at risk. For instance, one of the kind of most commonly cited job types that is likely to be at risk is accountants. Accounting jobs are actually jobs that it's expected these LLMs are going to be and really already are, but in the future, going to be very, very good at. And, you know, does that mean that every accountant or 90% of accountants will no longer have jobs? How do we retrain them to ensure that they can do something else? It's, it's a much more difficult problem than I think we've, we've been faced with in the past. Recently, some of the biggest names in the tech industry, I mean, the real giants, met in Washington to talk about generative AI and what we should do about it or harness it for good. I mean, there's so many aspects of regulation that matter. And you care about one in particular, about whether these powers remain in the hands of the very wealthy and the very few industry leaders, right? Yeah, so this is something that I think is incredibly concerning within this field and I think unique to this moment in time. So as you mentioned, I talk a lot about the analogs between the Industrial Revolution and today. And there are a lot of analogs, but I think there are some, some important differences. And one of the most important ones that we're seeing right now is that the capital investment required to actually play in this space, to create these generative AI models is very, very high, but also the knowledge required to do this is very, very specialized. And there are very few actors that have the knowledge to actually implement the, these classes of models. So when you combine these two scarce resources, the infrastructure and the knowledge, the outcome of that is that very, very, very few individuals have the capability to actually drive this conversation forward. This is a concern inside of academia, as an example, here at William & Mary, we have what you would consider a medium-sized computer, a supercomputer, so cost us about 20 to $30 million. In order to play in these, these kind of bigger arenas, you're talking about investments that look on the order of billions of dollars. And so even actors that traditionally 
are involved in these kind of cutting edge research efforts, in many ways, we have to work together. We have to network with other schools or other entities to try to get enough resources to ask the types of questions that we would like to. And even in the institutions that are very well positioned, so think about the Stanfords of the world, frequently the faculty members that are working at those institutions have agreements with Google or with Facebook in order to leverage their hardware to, to probe these types of models. That necessarily means that a very small number of private companies are really driving a lot of the conversation. They're making a lot of the decisions about what questions are asked and answered. And I'm deeply concerned that when you have a very small number of actors that are capable of, of doing this, that that will inherently bias the outcomes in ways that could be quite detrimental. What would you rather see and how might you get there? So I think there's a lot of interesting efforts afoot to try to resolve these problems, but there's no easy answers. You know, a lot of this comes down to public investment in infrastructure. We, of course, today and in kind of the current political environment don't have access to nearly the capital required to invest in some of this. I'm very happy that the, the National Science Foundation at the federal level is taking steps to try to solve this problem through national centers to focus around the study of AI. So we are starting to take some steps in the right direction to ensure that there's a more, a broader set of actors that can, can kind of contribute to these conversations. But we're not quite there yet, but we are taking steps. That said, I want to give this this message again of optimism. There's a lot of things that are scary about AI. I'm not of the belief that AI is ever going to be the Terminator and, and come and you know kill us with nuclear weapons or some such. I, I think that's out of the question and there are easy ways to prevent that. But I, I am very, very optimistic about the types of problems that AI can solve. These are very clear problems in society. Things like illness, Things like being unable to train people on, on a wide range of different technologies because there just aren't many universities, there aren't many high schools. Things related to income inequality. We can start to find solutions to these problems using AI to help us figure out the best ways to solve, solve things, give us ideas of how we can solve some of the biggest problems that we've ever been faced with if we get it right. And so there's risk it's scary, but the payoff is tremendous. So I hope that we can keep pushing in all of these different directions. This is really stimulating. Dan Runfola, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you very much. Dan Runfola is a professor of applied science at William & Mary. As we enter into the age of AI, where do the humanities fit in? Rishi Jaitley is a Distinguished Humanities Fellow at Virginia Tech and a board member of Virginia Humanities. He recently founded the Virginia Tech Institute for Leadership and Technology. It's a one-of-a-kind fellowship that immerses rising leaders in the tech world in all things humanities. Rishi, how large a role will the humanities play in your new Institute for Leadership and Technology? Well, the humanities are foundational and fundamental to our institute. The core question we've been asking is, what's the superpower of the future? In this age in which AI can do so much for us and might continue to, what's the superpower of the future now, but also 10 years from now? And one answer we think that we're positing is the humanities. So you have 12 fellows who've come in from all over. They spend a week in Blacksburg at Virginia Tech, and then in the spring, a week in Northern Virginia. What sort of courses will you give these people, or what sort of experiences that are immersions in the humanities will they have, do you imagine? Well, what's interesting, Sarah, is many of these people are already trying to nurture themselves on their own through podcasts they listen to, maybe this one, through books they read, throughout lectures they watch on YouTube. What's been missing is a shared intellectual journey in the humanities with others guided by faculty that helps them hone skills and sensibilities that emanate uniquely from the humanities. And so our first semester will anchor in what I call introspection. 
So in the fall, these students will take courses on the role the humanities have played in leadership, human leadership, since time immemorial. They'll take a module we're calling Ancient Texts and Tales, where they'll study the Western canon, but also its limits, the role of faith, values, and culture in not just Western societies, but Eastern societies, and examining the role of Judeo-Christian and Eastern civilizations and the role religion and culture have played in social and economic development. So our first semester will really be a look back on human leadership, a look back on the ancient world and what it might teach us. The second semester will be framed around imagination. One module will be a study of storytelling and the role storytelling has played in myth-making and movements, moral debates and motion pictures, a real deep dive into the powers of stories across media. And finally, their last module in March will be a study of the role of the humanities in technology and a reflection on the full-stack human of the future. What might he or she look like 20, 30 years from now? And they'll conclude their year with a creative work be it a play or a portrait, poetry or prose. And so when you take a step back, Sarah, many people, I think, in a variety of stages of life's journey are craving shared opportunities to nurture their skills and sensibilities that emanate from the humanities. That sounds like such an incredible course load. I think all of us listening would want it. How do you reconcile that with the image that we have that really tech leaders in the industry, especially people at the highest levels, are mostly trying to innovate, invent, and make money? How do they profit from this deep dive into the humanities? What's interesting is what's been true for so long, having spent so much of my career in Silicon Valley, is that the humanities have long played what one might call an underground role in Silicon Valley. Many executives and founders of products we use today have been quietly committing themselves to the liberal arts and to the humanities. Steve Jobs, of course, the founder of Apple, famously said that Apple lives at the corner of Technology Avenue and Humanities Street. And I can give you a long list of executives in Silicon Valley that themselves, whether in their undergraduate years or later years, committed themselves to the humanities. And so I think there's always been this sense that the humanities are a superpower that fuel a distinguished kind of introspection, clarity of mind, intuition, communication skills, vision, creativity, and all the hallmarks of what it takes to build technology companies, products, ideas that endure and survive the test of time with others. What's most surprising, I think, is that a program like ours has not yet existed. A program that meets learners, people in the working world, where they are, with an executive leadership credential, not grounded in business, not grounded in engineering, but grounded in humanities. You know, when you left high school and headed to Princeton in the fall of 2000, Your parents were both doctors, so surely you were destined, initially at least, for a science career. But that changed. It sure did. And I think often about that moment, I think I could have been a great physician, if I may say so myself. Uh, But, you know, what what I remember hearing at Princeton, at least, this is, you know, 23-ish years ago, was a message I'd never heard before, that study what gives you joy— and trust what might follow. And I think what happened at Princeton for me as a result of majoring in history was I developed a reference point for intellectual joy. The study of history gave me joy in the moment, not because I had a goal in mind. And I think that reference point, that template of pursuit in the real world that gives me a feeling of joy is something that's been really important for me in my career. I've always felt that the work I do ought to be not just spreading joy, but giving me joy as well. You know, in college, I was an English major, but I wish I had taken much more history 
Tell me about which history courses you actually took at Princeton. Share a little bit about what stayed with you after some of those courses. Well, it's funny you say that you wish you'd taken more history courses. I wish I'd taken English courses, actually, in college, looking back. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that's why, you know, our program is going to lean in into literature and creative writing in big ways. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I was at Princeton, I guess what's most memorable to me vis-a-vis -vis my studying in the history department was the amount of independent work we did. I took courses on British history and Japanese history and um, the history of India, and I, and I took a transformational course on World War II uh, and the operation um, before and during D-Day. Uh, a small seminar my freshman year that uh, was life-changing in many respects. And what I studied was the history of the United States and its immigration policy after World War II and how it changed and opened up and, and allowed people from Asia, where my parents are from, from South Asia, to migrate to and immigrate to the United States. So in many ways my independent intellectual work at Princeton was a labor of love, hmm. was a labor of self-understanding, writing about migration patterns from the East to the West. I think it, it showed me that in a big world, it is possible to have your point of passion become a point of labor, become a an idea one might take into the world. And, it, and it's striking that for much of the last 20 years, I've spent a lot of those years helping big American purposeful companies and causes land in India and Asia. You know, I was at Google nearly 20 years ago, one of the first Google people out in Asia, Twitter's first employee and executive in mainland Asia. And, and during those experiences, I couldn't not reflect on the fact that my work in the history department at Princeton was about those bridges too. And so I think these are great examples of the role the humanities play in cultivating clarity around one swim lane. And I've lived in these swim lanes much of my career. I so agree with you on the joys of the humanities and the richness and how much they bring to our lives and the lives of others. Could it be that we're entering an education world where tech education is for the masses, but humanities are for the elite, that the masses need trade skills that'll get them money and food, shelter, that kind of thing. But the humanities are, when you've managed to achieve that <laughs> and now can afford to bask in the joys of deep reading. Well, I think that delta is precisely what I'm trying to, to bridge and avoid. You know, I think that there's a big conversation in America right now around what's happening to humanities majors at universities. Yes. And the, the, decline, the decline in liberal arts majors across the American academy. Part of what I'm suggesting is that the future of the humanities may not lie merely in undergraduate major counts but may involve the humanities reimagining its go-to-market and presenting itself as a lifelong habit of mind and even a lifelong credential. And in order to get there, we're going to have to in invest in new muscles today. And this institute that I've built is a new muscle, right? We've built a new way to puzzle piece into people where they are and offer them a humanities product. And I think it's missed in a lot of the AI conversation. You know, a lot of the conversations around AI miss that maybe what we ought to be doing isn't just scrutinizing all the AI companies, but investing heavily in democratizing access to distinctly human skills and sensibilities. Well, what if I'm a truck driver and I've loved it, I've done it for years, don't want to do anything else, and AI gives me driverless trucks? Well, I think that that's precisely the starting question we ought to be beginning from. For years, the answer has been just, well, let's retrain those people and give them new technical skills. And I think that there's been a lot of 
public conversation on that topic. Many will agree, many will disagree, whether that even is realistic, how empathetic really is that. But I think another answer and other ideas ought to coexist in that space. I think that the ability, for instance, to sell yourself in a complicated, cluttered commercial marketplace does involve skills and sensibilities that come from the liberal arts and humanities. Storytelling, storytelling oneself in a complicated, competitive marketplace is tough. And I think that offering people who have been disrupted by technological advances, not just a retraining, come here, be retrained in six months and turnkey, you'll have something on the other side, sounds simplistic, but emphasizing to all people that storytelling and story listening matter just as much. You know, my first, my first job out of college, I worked for a nonprofit called College Summit, now called Peer Forward, where we worked with low-income high school students across the United States to close the college admissions gap. And all we did was work with them on narrative and storytelling, storytelling their life experiences in ways that made them, um, their assets, more attractive in higher ed. And I think we underestimate that in our culture, how important it is to cultivate those skills too. Do you have both fears and appreciation for AI? Yes. My appreciation is that this is just another example of human truth. You know, we're, we, the awe and wonder you feel when you step into a cathedral from the 15th century is the same awe and wonder some people feel when they get their new iPhone. And both are okay. <laughs> both are okay. Both, yeah. are, both come from the same place. And so I feel that too. My fear is less around all the doomsday scenarios, but more around AI literacy and to what extent we are democratizing access to the human skills that are going to be essential in harnessing the power of AI. I think what I don't want to see is a class of haves and have-nots around folks that are able to make full use of this superintelligence and those that aren't. And in many ways, our institute is on a mission to widen access and appeal of the humanities. Well, I... I'm envious of this first cohort of yours. It's going to be a terrific year. Rishi Jaitley, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. It's my pleasure, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Rishi Jaitley is a Distinguished Humanities Fellow at Virginia Tech and founder of the Virginia Tech Institute for Leadership and Technology. He's also a board member at Virginia Humanities. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Many teachers are scared about the impact AI will have on cheating, but my next guest says most of his students will be using AI in the workplace once they graduate. So he encourages them to use AI on assignments and coaches them on how to use it appropriately. Anand Rao is a professor of communication at the University of Mary Washington. He's also director of the Speaking Intensive Program and the Speaking Center there. When I think about the introduction of AI into the classroom, it, it reminds me of so many past technologies and how it's changed the way the educational process works. One of the first panels that I participated in in January, and we talked about the Phaedrus, and there was a, a discussion in the Phaedrus about Socrates being opposed to incorporating written language into the classroom because he was afraid that it would erode his students' memories. Um, the oral <laughs> tradition was so strong. And so there was a concern that something would be lost. And I think it probably has been on some level. But of course, there are a lot of benefits associated with it. So part of me is a, a fairly optimistic nature when looking at new technologies to say maybe there's some potential here that'll better address our students' needs. Now, at the same time, I share really almost all of the same concerns my colleagues have. I, I certainly don't want to introduce something that's going to take away from that educational opportunity. I certainly do not want students to cheat or to think that a new technology 
takes away some of the work that they should be doing. Um, so instead, I try to approach it in a, a fairly optimistic way and talk very transparently with students about, you know, there are technologies here that can do work that before you probably had to do on your own. And I think about writing papers when I was in high school, I didn't have Grammarly or spell checks, and I really wish I did. But at the same time now, if I'm limited by my own ability to spell words, then that's probably going to hold me back. And I should make use of some of those tools that we have available that we become really accustomed to. So what's a simple way anybody, let's say in higher education, can use ChatGPT in the classroom. What sorts of things can it do? And what sorts of things naturally might students be using it for? So for many of the students that I've talked to, they are able to use it to have a discussion of sorts to generate new ideas. They're able to test some of their ideas. So I was teaching an argumentation class, for instance, in the spring, and students were already starting to use it. And I offered some suggestions and guidance on how to use it. But they found it really useful to be able to take their early arguments and present it to ChatGPT and ask ChatGPT, how do I improve these arguments? Um, what's a better way to phrase this? So one current topic that a lot of high school debaters are using right now that I know that in the summer I was talking to some students about is the topic is the U.S. should guarantee a right right to housing. Now, when a student thinks about that from a teenager's perspective, they have some understanding about housing policy or what it means to be unhoused, but they probably have a fairly limited understanding. And of course, they're doing research and reading more articles, and they start to put those arguments together. What every new debater experiences is they get ready for that first tournament, and they present their arguments, and then they hear counterarguments they've never heard before. Right. Well, this year, I think a lot of those students are using a tool like ChatGPT to develop those counterarguments, to make sure they are aware of some of those counterarguments. So they're already doing the research, they're developing their arguments, they're developing their proposals, and then they can go to ChatGPT and say, here's what I want to propose. ChatGPT, give me some counterarguments. And remind me of how ChatGPT responding and giving counterarguments is different than Googling counterarguments. Absolutely. Well, that's a good question. And this is one thing that is a really important distinction that I want my students to understand between a search engine and a generative AI tool like ChatGPT. A search engine, when it's putting the materials together, it's collecting materials, it's collecting the links, it's looking at all the content on those links, and it's creating a directory of sorts so that when you are asking for right to housing, it can go through its directory and it can say, here are all the websites that talk about right to housing, and it can give me those links. And it'll say, this is the one that has the most references to right to housing. Maybe it's in the title. Maybe it's all about right to housing. It's recalling material that it's already collected. Now, generative AI works a little differently. It is trained on a lot of the same content, but it's not designed to recall information. What it's doing is that it's learning, in effect, all of this content, it's training on this content. And then when it thinks about the connections between words, it's looking to predict what the words will be that follow. So when it thinks about, or it's trying to consider something about right to housing, it then probably puts together all of the words that would typically be found in articles or books included in a section that talk about right to housing. So when it's putting the text together, it's not recalling the text from a book or an article. It's not recalling specific text from a website. It's predicting what the next word might be, given what it's been trained on. So it's very good at generating new content. And that's why it's called generative AI. It's generating content and not recalling content. So your argument is students are going to be using AI in the real world, that they are using it now. They're going to be using it in the workplace. Let's train them to use it the best possible way in the classroom. Exactly. Students are using it right now. It's too late to try and ban it. That's not something that's realistic. I might be able to prevent them from using it in the classroom, but I'm not going to be able to prevent them from using it outside of the classroom. And it's also important to recognize that our students will be graduating into a world where generative AI is increasingly being used in the workplace. And there are a host of reasons why businesses would look to use generative AI increase efficiency, perhaps to be able to increase productivity. There are a lot of great tools and applications that are already developed. And I think we're just at the beginning of that curve. There's a lot that will be developed. So it's part of my responsibility as an instructor to make sure that I'm preparing them for that world. Now, if they just learn it on their own, they might learn some of this material, but they won't necessarily learn how to use it effectively and responsibly. And I think if we look back to social media, that's a good example where some of those concerns can really be illustrated. 
You know, early on, I've taught a social media class for years. And when I remember the early iterations of that class, it was really fairly superficial. It was talking about early versions of Facebook, maybe MySpace. And then we got into Instagram and students were using it really to build community. There was a lot of just social interaction. But over the years, we found that there are real changes in social media from outside actors influencing, control of the algorithms, influencing through advertisements, um, bots being used to be able to garner influence in social media. And so we have a, a whole generation, and really most of us, that never were taught to think critically about social media. And I think we've seen some of the costs associated with that. So I, I want to take that perspective and understanding that with a tool like AI, in a similar, it's not exactly the same as social media, but it's similar enough in that it is here, students are using it and will be using it. And I think it's my responsibility to make sure they're going to be doing so responsibly and in a productive, efficient, and hopefully rewarding way. So even you, however, are a little bit concerned about students using it to get around doing the real work or using it, heaven forbid, to cheat. Give me an example of how a student might use it to cheat in your class? Sure. I think that students could use it to cheat. Um, and I don't think it's that dissimilar from paper mills. You know, over the years, we've often had concerns about students getting papers from the internet or copying material directly from a source on the internet. Even before that, I remember hearing stories of somebody that could pay somebody else to write their paper. So it's not a new concern. It's a little different concern, though, because these tools are readily accessible now. And it would be a lot easier to employ them that way if you wanted to. So I am concerned about that. How could a student use it to cheat? I mean, I think it would be very easy with some of these tools. They're sophisticated enough. They can do an internet search that they could actually put together a paper, include footnotes. They could make a fairly cogent argument, and they could do it in a way that it would be very difficult to detect. Certainly, if I'm trying to read it and tell, is this the student's work or the AI's work? Unless I'm very, very familiar with that student's writing style and the kind of work they've been doing up to that point, I'm not going to be able to tell. So... How afraid of that should we be? Or should we just lay mm -hmm. off of that and focus on the benefits? It's an excellent question. And, you know, it might be helpful just to say a little bit about what some have said we should be turning to, and those are AI detectors. And so some schools have tried to deploy these AI detectors. They have something that can read over the paper and predict whether it was written by AI. And I know that even six months ago, there was a lot of hope that that would give us you know, some way to, to ensure the student was, were doing their own work and they're turning in papers. Unfortunately, those are unreliable and it's really unfair in the way that they could be deployed because the technology just isn't there. Even the company that founded ChatGPT tried to develop one and just months ago, they took it down saying that it's not reliable. There are too many false positives, too many false negatives. And it was also an equity issue because there are concerns that some of those detectors, when they detect something is written as AI, when they say this was written primarily or likely was written by AI, they found that it was detecting it based on what it saw as formulaic language, for instance. Well, if we think about students that are more likely to use more formulaic language, you're probably going to find students for whom English is a second language or for students that are maybe still learning how to write. So you could unfairly identify somebody as turning in fabricated work from AI when it really was their own work. And there's no way the detector could get around that. So even the best really only give a percentage chance. Maybe they might say 60% chance was written by AI. And there's really no way we can fairly treat students with something that's just not that certain. Could one way forward be assigning students work that incorporates AI and having them be ever more creative with it using ChatGPT, mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've heard some great examples of assignments the faculty have used, and this is all including K through 12 as well as higher ed, where a faculty member can use AI to maybe help generate new content that will hopefully prompt more creative output from the students. So I've heard a presentation from an instructor in Kentucky who is a, an elementary school teacher. And I think it's late elementary school, fourth and fifth grade. But he was talking about an example where he used generative AI to produce the beginning, maybe the first scene of a play. And so it would generate a new play idea, assign characters, talk about the setting for the play, and even give much of the, the context for the first scene. And then he would have students take it from there and then write the rest of it. So it would give them a way to good starting point to figure out what could they do with the story now that they have the beginning of the story. And so I think that's a good way to maybe prompt some other creativity, do some fun things with it in ways that, that we weren't able to do as easily before. 
So if college professors and high school teachers really are eager to incorporate all this into their lessons, where can they get that kind of training? That's certainly a challenge. You know, it's it's challenging at this point for any instructor to try and incorporate new technology as the school year has already begun. I think for this year, most instructors are thinking about how can we incorporate some examples? How can we talk about um, what's a responsible use of this tool? But I think we'll have the opportunity over the coming year for a couple of things to happen. First, I think we'll see some other developments in the technology. Of course, it continues to change. But as it's changing and developing, I think that we are able to develop better support materials. So even OpenAI, the company that has run ChatGPT and founded ChatGPT, only just in the last couple of weeks came out with materials to support teachers with use of ChatGPT. I think we'll also, as educational leaders, be able to come together to think about what are our goals here? How do we make sure that we can integrate discussion of AI literacy, of the use of tools like generative AI in the classroom in a responsible way and prompt some of those discussions. And at the same time, recognize the students who are already being exposed to these tools. Anand Rao is a professor of communication at the University of Mary Washington and director of the Speaking Intensive Program in the Speaking Center there. Falling down the rabbit hole started as a reference to Alice in Wonderland. Now it's mostly used in the context of online radicalization. Ugo Etudo is a professor of information systems at Virginia Commonwealth University. He uses a form of AI called natural language processing to glean new insights into how people get radicalized on the internet. Natural language processing predates artificial intelligence. Actually, artificial intelligence is a method of processing natural language. And so processing natural language is any attempt to make a computer understand some aspect of natural language. So using natural language processing, what keywords or what are you teaching the computer to look for that signifies radicalization? We're not looking for keywords. What we're doing is trying to build ideological networks. We came up with a web. You can think of it as as a web with nothing in it. It's just a series of connections between concepts. So the, the, the basic structure of the types of assertions you need to make in order to become a radicalizing ideology, we argue are represented in this web that we've constructed. Now, what's special about this web is that it's completely understandable, digestible to a computer. So a computer can traverse it as easily as it traverses the World Wide Web. Now, rather than looking for keywords, we just look for concepts and ideas that fit into the web. And if those ideas and concepts are deployed in that web in a way that resembles radicalizing behavior, then one could potentially flag that content. And which websites or social media platforms are you looking at? There's a research community studying computational methods for understanding and interdicting radicalization online. And they have collected data from many websites. Currently, we are focused on Stormfront. And so we have a database that is exhaustive with respect to all posts um, from Stormfront, which is a white nationalist website. Another website we we use is called Iron March, which has been shut down, but was again a forum for white nationalists. So you've spent a lot of time prowling these forums like Stormfront. Mm -hmm. What happens behind the scenes in those forums? What do you see sort of play out? Perhaps the most surprising thing is how normal the conversations sound, how the use of humor is done so expertly. You would be surprised at what you might be able to laugh at, given the framing used by many of the actors on on these platforms. That's, That's the first thing that's most surprising, is you can see how one can come to spend a lot of time in those fora. They are engaging, they're entertaining, right? And a lot of the conversations are run-of-the-mill, absolutely run-of-the-mill. A lot of conversations about music, a lot of conversations about cars, food. But you have these triggering events that switch the conversation 
And these triggering events are things happening in the real world that cut at the core of what this community is supposed to believe. And then the conversations can become dark, scary, but rarely violent, rarely obvious either. And and constantly aware that they might be surveilled. So do you find that you as a Black man can go through these forums where white nationalists are talking to each other and actually be amused upon occasion at the humor and the Mm -hmm. banter? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've always laughed at myself. You know, I am a Black man, but I'm also an African man. I was born and raised in Nigeria. And this, this is a very different perspective than a Black man born of Black parents who themselves were born in America. Very different level of tolerance for this type of conversation, I would guess, on average. It's perhaps easier for me to play the trick on myself that they're not really talking about me specifically, right? But I guess they kind of are. Um, Their views are... um, are, are varied and often very intricate. You would be surprised. So I'll give you an example. You, you may or may not know this, but there's a thread of conversation and it's been there for a very long time amongst white nationalists and white supremacists about the pyramids in Egypt and who constructed the pyramids. There's been legitimate archeological discussion that calls into question when the pyramids were constructed and by whom, what society, what civilization, what epoch in human existence constructed those pyramids. And while there have been legitimate questions raised about the current dogma in archaeology, white nationalists have jumped on those questions, which are being raised completely you know, separate from their ideology, but they've jumped on those questions as a and you know it's difficult for me to even say it, but as a um, a means to discredit Black intelligence, right, as a means to discredit Black civilization, right? So if you're the owner of a social media site and you want to make sure that, you know, this type of content is at least flagged as being this type of content, you might decide, hey, let's try to teach a computer to identify this stuff. Now, the things that will most resonate with a computer will be rather obvious things, right? Things that the moment you see it, you know this is radical, this is extreme. But subtle, innocuous-looking ideas that are otherwise legitimate but serve an insidious purpose, those things scare me. Things that launder the ideology into society. Why are people bothering with that? Why does this matter to them? Why aren't they simply going about their lives, earning a paycheck, going out to eat? Dating, this sort of thing. Why? What's the appeal? I'm sure they're doing. I'm sure they're doing all of those things, right? And in the literature, in the academic literature on radicalization, one of the interesting points that there has been made is how this radicalization happens. The radicalization doesn't happen because the the, the radical ideas themselves are attractive. It's because there's a community that's willing to accept you when you otherwise may not have been accepted in your regular life. But that community can easily slip in other ideas. What starts out as a regular seeming community can quickly become something else over time. And so you don't want to lose your friends or maybe you even want to one up your friends. You want to impress them. Right. Um, And that can be a very motivating thing. So what is the end goal of your work with natural language processing AI? You're not going to share it with police or military who do you imagine finding it interesting? I think other researchers would find would find it greatly interesting. I think owners of social media platforms might find it very interesting. I think one of the one of one of the best use cases for this is a future as yet non-existent generative AI that can present counter arguments to people who are beginning to engage at the very early stages with radicalizing ideas. So, you know, consider this. If you were to use this iteration of Twitter X today, even its owner, Elon Musk's comments get community reviewed, right? And folks will fact check and provide additional context. But how do you know that this notion, you know, this this Egyptology, this newfound Egyptology idea can be associated with radical thinking, even though that idea, by the way, is a perfectly legitimate 
branch of archaeological inquiry, right? I want to make that clear. Yeah. But how would you know that 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 such an otherwise innocuous idea could be radicalizing? And how would you respond to that? That's where I see this fitting in. It's right at the early stages, right when you start to engage with the beginnings of an ideological thread that can take you down a rabbit hole. Let's present counterarguments. I know this isn't the purpose of your research, but I'm curious. What do you think that you've come to understand about people by prowling these white nationalist forums and mapping ideologies related to radicalization? People don't want to feel alone. People don't want to feel weird, right? You know, I, I, I'm speaking, I'm speaking somewhat colloquially when I say that. And what I'm trying, what I'm trying to say is, it's easy to feel like an alien amongst people, right? Especially if you're different for one one reason or the other. And people don't like that. They they will they will do quite a lot to try to escape that sensation. People in groups can be remarkably cruel and say really awful things. And I'm certainly not immune. I am a people as well. So I'm certainly not immune. And so that's the thing I've, I, I think I, I learned the most is you put us into groups, especially when we really need to be in that group in order to not feel alone. And we can do rather dangerous things. So true. Ugo Etudo, thank you for sharing your insights on this with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Ugo Etudo is a professor of information systems at Virginia Commonwealth University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Costo and Liliana Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.